Gospel of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're continuing this series now, it's our second week, called Holy Spirit Power, Holy Spirit Purpose. And we're going to be picking up where we left off last week, and while you're turning in your Bible, I'm just going to say a quick prayer. Father, I pray that it is your word given today, and only your word. Father, I pray that it that it be Christ-glorifying, Spirit-led, and Lord, that you use this message to impact our hearts, change some hearts, change some minds. Lord, that you grow us and grow us closer to your Son through the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to pick up reading in verse 12. It begins, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each of them, as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, many, uh, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor, again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. Church, the, the, the point of this text, and I hope if you take nothing else home with you today, you write this down and, and you remember this, this simple fact, that gifts empower us towards unity. And when we are united, we draw closer to Christ. I'll say that again. The gifts empower us towards unity. And when we are united, we draw closer to Christ. We draw closer together as we draw closer to Christ. And as we draw closer to Christ, we take other people with us. Do we not? When the light is within you, you can't help but shine it in the darkness around you. Amen? 
Now last week as we began this series, I, I wanted to just dive right into the message. So we had a very short intro and I'll probably do that again today uh, somewhat. If you look back on YouTube or, or check out our new podcast, you'll see why. It was a very lengthy message last week. We have so much to cover. And even today, for the purposes of this series, I, I want to make sure that I articulate everything thoroughly and that we have a, a general understanding of what we're getting at here. But so much more, there is confusion around the person of the Holy Spirit. I said this last week, if someone were to blaspheme God the Father, we'd get pretty defensive. If someone were to belittle the name of Jesus, we would get standoffish. But there are many times things happen and we brush it off as, as the Holy Spirit or, or we just kind of shrug it off as if, uh, whatever. And that's not good. That's not something we should ever do. It's not fair to the Holy Spirit. It's certainly not fair to the church and it's not fair to us as individuals either. The last week we just dove or dived, we daved, we daved right into the, the spiritual gifts. Dave is not the right word. We just dove right in. But what, what can happen from the giftings is what we see happening in the Corinthian church. Is that people who operate within certain gifts, either by themselves or because the church around them chooses to, they become elevated. They, we, we like certain gifts and we don't really appreciate the other gifts. And that's what Paul's addressing here. So people either do that themselves or they do it because other people lift them up, but it is never, hear me on this, it is never done by the Holy Spirit. He is not going to give someone a gift to elevate them above someone else within the church, ever. We saw this last week. The Holy Spirit does not force a person to do something. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 14.32. The spirits of the prophet are subject to the prophets. Now, the Holy Spirit may prompt you to do something, but we don't ever see the Holy Spirit forcing someone to do something they're not already willing to do within the context of Scripture. In Acts chapter 2, for example, we see the church speaking in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, not forcing them to pray that way. In Acts chapter 8, when Philip is caught away, Philip the evangelist is caught away in the Spirit, and he's, he's I like to say teleported because that sounds more sci-fi. When he's moved, he was willing to go. It's not that he was unwillingly swept away or kidnapped by the Holy Spirit. We don't see that in Scripture. But with that said, there are things that the Holy Spirit makes us as a church. He makes us diverse. He makes us equal. And he makes us love all as he unites us, as he unites the church and draws us closer to Jesus. The Spirit makes us diverse is my, my first point this morning. And uh, trying to get the slides to work as I do this. We read in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 again, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one, so it is with Christ. So Paul is beginning to paint this portrait, this picture of the body of Christ, what it truly looks like. He's comparing the unity or the solidarity that we are supposed to have as a body of believers. He's comparing that to the human body. In verse 12, what we see Paul doing, very subtly he uses a, a brilliant linguistic or, or I like to say preaching tactic. He says the same thing two different ways. And he does this to emphasize the simple point. There is one body 
and many members. Many members make up the one body. So it is with Christ. So it is with the church. That's what, that's what he's emphasizing. Now, we already know, we, if we look around this room, we know the church is a diverse organism, right? We see people in this very sanctuary from different ethnic backgrounds, different vocations, different uh, socioeconomic standards and things of that nature, different family names, different towns, the list goes on and on. We see the diversity of the church all the way at its very beginning in the book of Acts. Now, had some in the, in the era of the book of Acts had their way, the church would have never gone to the Gentiles. In fact, they, they, were really much, they very much opposed the uncircumcised coming into the church, right? But Peter has this vision in Acts chapter 10, and he's told to go to this Roman centurion's house, a man by the name of Cornelius, and he gets up and he begins to preach the gospel to them, and something incredible happens. Verse 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 44 in the book of Acts, it says, while Peter was still saying these things, in other words, he's still preaching to them, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament and the Old Testament law, you know that God set up a, a, a caveat of sorts for the immigrant or the traveler, the sojourner who would want to join with Israel. They could do that, but they had to come and assimilate and be a part of the nation of Israel. We see this in the book of Ruth. She tells her mother-in-law, Naomi, uh, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. And then she does this very thing. It's her life. And she's called a woman of chayil, is the Hebrew word, a woman of valor, because she does this. But in the New Testament, it gets flipped upside down. You don't wait for the traveler or the immigrant to come to you. You go be the traveler. You go be the immigrant. You go out and preach the good news. In fact, we call it the Great Commission. It's listed twice in the Gospels. In Mark 16, he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the, to the whole creation. Matthew 28, 19, it's up on our wall. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This means that from its earliest beginnings, the church was going to be diverse. It was going to be different people making up one organism. It was going to be different races, different backgrounds, and so on. Paul says, that's fine. That's a beautiful thing. Because the Spirit goes deeper than skin color or social standing. He gets to the very core of who we are as people. That's what the Spirit does within us. And he writes on in verses 13 and 14. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. By, by again saying that we are all part of one body, Paul is likely he's referencing something that is very familiar to the Corinthian Christian. This is an idea that would have been embedded in their mind. It's something they frequently heard, this idea of strength and unity. That's the Roman motto. That's the Roman ideal. They were a, a one-world nation, right? They conquered and they assimilated the different cultures 
into their culture. They would go out and they would conquer this little town and those people's towns would become Roman soldiers. Those people's towns would become Roman citizens. They would absorb them. There was diversity within the Roman mindset and there was strength in that. We see it even today. If you look at your quarters that you dropped in the buddy barrel this morning, e pluribus unum, it's Latin, out of the many, one. We see it in our pocket change. This, this idea has impacted the world. And by this era, this, this time, almost 100 years later, a man by the name of Marcus Aurelius would say, since you are an integral part of a social system, let every act of yours contribute to the harmonization of social life. Any action that is not related directly or remotely to this social aim disturbs your life and destroys your unity. This was in the, the cultural mindset, the zeitgeist, if you will. There's a famous fable by a man named Mamenius Agrippa, about 500 years before Paul writes this. This just to give you another idea of how rooted this idea is in their mindset. He tells this story of a mouth and hands and teeth who get very upset with the body's stomach. It's a, it's an, a fable, of course. And so they decide they're not going to feed the stomach. Well, that doesn't go very well for the human body, right? And that's the, that's the play that Paul is, is pulling from here. This would have fallen into their cultural conscience. But Paul does something different. He goes one step further, and he connects it to to baptism. Not baptism with water, but in the Spirit. For in one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Now, Paul, at this point, when he's talking about this, he's not addressing spirit baptism in the way we would use that phrase necessarily. Not here, at least not yet. And we know this because of the context, because of what he says. He says, into one body. At the point of conversion, not the secondary thing. He's not there yet. He's not referencing that at this moment. We see this clearer earlier in the text in chapter 6, verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So what he's referencing here is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit into the life of a new believer. When you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, Jesus Christ is Lord and you are saved, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and begins to change you. He begins to make something new. Amen? We agree? I need you to really be active today because I'm. I, Pastor Calvin brought me a Starbucks this morning. I know some of you don't like Starbucks, but it was coffee and it was delicious and I guzzled that and I'm wired for this message today. All right? There I get an amen. I'll take it. But this is, this is what's going on here. And he, so the, he's referencing here at this moment the converted believer. Paul is making the case that once we are joined with Christ, we are joined in Christ. And we see them do this again in Galatians 2.20. He writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Romans 9, uh, 8, 9, I'm sorry, Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. When we are in Christ, the Spirit dwells within us. That happens to all believers. Whether we are Jewish, whether we are Greek, whether we are white, whether we are black, whether we are purple, it doesn't matter. It happens when the Spirit 
indwells in us. The Spirit is not answering to affirmative action. He's going into the life of everybody who's willing to accept Him. We are all taken in, and the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Paul speaks of this again in Galatians 3, 27-28. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. That is not to say, by the way, that the idea of a secondary baptism in the Holy Spirit is moot or pointless to Paul. In fact, it's likely assumed by Paul that these people who, if we established this last week, if they're writing to him about the spiritual gifts, they have experienced such a thing, and that's necessitating his writing to them and addressing this response. That He's addressing this issue within the church. The idea of God's Holy Spirit baptizing believers, that's a, that's a foundational belief. We see all the way back in Acts chapter 2, Acts 2.4. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I referenced that earlier. They were already believers. They were already followers of Christ when this happened. But what happens after that is Peter gets up and he begins to preach. And he quotes Joel chapter 2, verse 28. And he says, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Again, all Flesh, it's not limited to a select elite few. You understand? So to clarify, for Paul, the idea of baptism of the Holy Spirit, as we refer to it as a secondary event in the believer's life, was assumed for them to have been something, a a specific manifestation for for the gifts that they're writing to him about to begin with. So he assumes that they are believers, and that they have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit as we would define it. Especially in light of the book of Acts, there's always an external event that accompanies the internal baptism of the Holy Spirit. Always we see something happens, some kind of evidence given to the people around them. Typically, most specifically, what we see is the action of speaking in other tongues. But as I pointed out last week, the Spirit doesn't just stop with that individual prayer language. There's a variety of gifts. In fact, Paul's going to expand on that list this week. Those gifts are given to different people. They're given at different times for different reasons, but their ultimate purpose is always to bring unity within the body of Christ. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many, he writes. We read on in verse 15 through 17. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Now, we don't catch this today because quite a few years have passed and it's a cultural shift. But what Paul is doing is he's actually using his sense of humor here. He's making a very subtle joke. He's using irony. Irony was a big uh, way of telling jokes back in Paul's day, and this is kind of what he's saying. Because the hand, the eye, the, the ear, what do they all miss? A mouth. Right? They can't talk. These are parts of the body incapable of speech. In fact, my eye doesn't make much noise. My ear doesn't either. My my hand can't even clap by itself, right? 
So what Paul is saying is, look how silly this sounds that these things are trying to say this stuff. And yet Paul reminds us again soon after of God's sovereignty. But as it is, God arranged the members in each or in the body, each one of them, as he chose. As the Holy Spirit works within the church, he does so in a way to arrange and move each and every one of us as he sees fit in an effort to unify the body. The church is meant to be diverse, but from that diversity, the Holy Spirit draws us towards unity. And in that unity, we draw closer to our Savior. Amen? And second, we see the Spirit makes us equal. Paul writes in, in verse 19, if, we were all, uh, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. While we're all different as individuals, we are all to be one body. There is not meant to be some kind of hierarchy within the church. We are not all doing this on our own. A couple of weeks ago, uh, as we saw Jesus in Mark chapter 6, he sent the disciples out two by two. And, and I said, it's, it's not a good thing to be a loner Christian. It's not a good thing to be a lone wolf Christian. In fact, I would say we are called to be sheep of his pasture. Church, if we're sheep, wolves are a bad thing, right? The body needs its members. Church attendance matters. Yes, if you can't get out of your house because of illness or the weather is bad or, or you have a conference to go to, <laughs> there are obvious exceptions to that. But we are commanded to meet together. We are told to come together as one body, different but equal, together, not necessarily the same. Hebrews 10, 23-25 tells us, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. If you are a Spirit-filled believer, if you are a believer, let me just shorten that, your spiritual health is at stake when you do not meet with other believers, when you do not come together as a church, when you're not part of the church. In fact, if a Christian says, I'm just fine on my own, watch as they fall apart. They fade very quickly. Branches wither when they separate themselves from the vine. I have walked through many woods in southern Illinois growing up, and very, very never did I see a tree that was healthy with one branch. It does not happen. Those who are faithful, we are to be taking those who are not as faithful and gather them up and get them on their feet and bring them in and not lord our faithfulness over them, but encourage them in the Lord. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Jesus addresses this late, uh, earlier in Matthew chapter 20, Verses 25 and 26, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and that their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. I was speaking with someone recently, I'm not sure who it was, but it was about pastoral correction. 
and I was not giving them pastoral correction in this instance, but explaining the, the meaning of it and what it's supposed to be like. If I, as your pastor, try to correct you or persuade you on a theological topic, it is never, and I want to make this very clear, it is never so you can walk away going, gosh, Pastor Jeff is so smart. No, please don't do that. It's not so you can think you have the world's greatest pastor or that you, you are beat up feeling wrong. It, that's not the case. Peter gives very strict instructions to pastors when he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. This is, by the way, 1 Peter 5, 2 through 4. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. As your pastor, I answer to God. I have to answer to God for how I've used the giftings he's given me, how I use the talents that he's given me. And if I'm trying to correct or edify or even rebuke, I'm, I'm supposed to do it in love in a way that brings you to Christ. Now, I'm not perfect at that. I'll be the first to admit that. But that's, that's how I operate in my gifting, and I'm, I'm trying to get better, so grace is always appreciated. But it does not, and hear me on this, it does not make me better than you. It does not make the pastor higher than you. It does not make me more spiritual or more special than you. But if, as your pastor, I see you heading down a path with a slippery slope, and I don't warn you, I'm not operating in my gifting. I'm not operating in the gifts of the Spirit He's given me or my calling. And it's my job to shepherd you back onto the straight and narrow with firm footing. Amen? The same goes, and some of you aren't going to like this part, but the same goes for those in leadership, those who have the gifts of discerning of spirits, the gift of knowledge, the gift of wisdom that we saw last week. That is a tool that does not place us higher over other people. But instead, it is a gift God has given you to help me, as the pastor, keep the church on track. In Ephesians, Paul does uh, instructions of the church. He says they're to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Ephesians 5.21 No one is higher than someone else within the church body. Who is the highest? Jesus. Not the pastor, not the board. No one but Jesus. On the contrary, Paul writes in verse 22, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Aesop has this fable where he tells the story about an eye that gets so jealous of the mouth because the eye finds honey, and honey looks so sweet, and it looks so good, and he hears from the nose how good it smells, but the mouth is the only one who gets to taste it. So the human the eye belongs to and the mouth belongs to decides to compromise. He says, okay, I'm going to let the eye taste honey, and he pours the honey into his eye. Of course, the eye screams out in pain. That does not work, Right? Paul's making a very similar point here. Within the body of Christ, because just like the human body, there are parts that don't get seen or get a lot of praise. Well, I mean, think about this. When's the last time you said, Lord, thank you for my kidneys? I'm so great I've got kidneys. If they don't function, though, 
you're in trouble, right? You ever hear some athlete go, oh man, I just, I went up there and I took the jump shot and my kneecaps held together so great, I'm so glad I got kneecaps. No, you don't hear anybody say that. But yet if it wasn't for those kneecaps, they are not going anywhere. You ever thank God for your sweat glands? Your nose hair? But without sweat glands, your body would overheat. Without your nose hair, some of us have more than others, you'd be breathing in harmful bacteria. The same is true with the church. I'm very appreciative of our staff, Pastor Calvin and Tiffany and, and Alan, who is our janitor. I'm very thankful. They make my job as your pastor so much easier. But if it wasn't for the faithful giving of our church, none of us would be able to dedicate the time that the church requires. And that's not, by the way, that is not meant as a put down towards bivocational pastors. There are some who do great work. That's just not how we operate here at Faith currently. Paul even says God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there be no division. You have to understand, the parts of the body we overlook are often the parts that, that deserve or really need the most attention. They're the ones we want within the body, right? James tells us, listen, my beloved brothers, has, God, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? James is not, by the way, saying that rich people cannot be a Christian. What he's saying is the poor can be too. In Christ, it does not matter your, your social standing, how big your checkbook is, or anything like that, what clothes you wear, what car you drive. In fact, what James is saying, much like Paul, is that we are all sinners in need of a Savior, and God sent His Son for all of us. When we accepted and believed that, we all joined on equal footing. You may want to write this down. The ground at the foot of the cross is perfectly level. No man, no woman stands taller than the other. Paul writes on in verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. He echoes this later in Romans 12. He says, love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. If one person or one family suffers within our church, we are all to take that on. It's why we have prayer chains and flock notes and things like that. It's not because we're nosy. It's not because we want to be all up in your business. It's so we can pray for one another, so we can serve one another, so we can bless one another. Because we understand, were it not for Christ, we would all be lost. And the flock is the strongest together when we're working together, moving together towards the same goal. We, all may, we may already be diverse in our pre-Christian backgrounds, but in Christ, the Spirit makes us each unique, each different, yet each equal. All for the purpose of drawing us together towards Christ who gave himself for us. The same gifts that make us different draw us towards unity and they must lead us to Christ. And third and finally, the Spirit makes us love. In verse 27, Paul continues, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Paul makes it clear. The church belongs to Christ. People can say, that's my church. I don't know about your church. It is Christ's church. 
The word you here is plural. He's addressing the whole church, not not, uh, to also address them as individuals, but he's addressing all of them. We are all members of the church. So if we all belong to Christ, we are part of Christ's church. And if we're part of Christ's church, if we belong to Christ, they all go hand in hand. Now this idea of individual members being a part of something, the Greek term is ekmeros. It's, it's going to play out again in chapter 13 when he writes, For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now Paul is making the case that in eternity, the gifts will pass away. But this wording, ekmeros, it happens nowhere else in the New Testament. Nobody else uses this terminology. So what is Paul implying? Well, since the series didn't, isn't going through chapter 13, and I preached on chapter 13 last year, and I didn't really cover this, I'll tell you. To begin with, in, in, in chapter 13, Paul is stating very clearly the gifts at some point are not going to be needed in the future. He says in verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, they will pass away. But as for now, we know in part, ekmeros, we prophesy in part, ekmeros, and we are all a part, ekmeros, of the body. Prophecy, like knowledge, as it pertains to the human or the earthly side of things, is very limited. In fact, in the Old Testament, when there were prophets, when people were given prophecies, they were given just enough to pull back the veil and give a glimpse of what was to come. And it's the same thing today. But when we are in the presence of Christ, when we are in the presence of the Almighty, these things no longer matter as much, right? So what's the purpose of them? We won't have any questions of what comes next when we are in the presence of the Almighty answer. When we as the body become truly united, we may still prophesy as an individual. We may know things as an individual, but it is but it being an individual gifting for the sake of the individual is never, though, it's never meant to be the point. I've heard someone in a church say one time, I was given a word of knowledge for your brother. Well, what was it? Mm, can't tell you. Seriously. Well, then you weren't given anything, bud. Well, you just, it was just like, I know things about you. Okay. You read my Facebook? What? You know? It is for the unity of the church. So the united church, of course, is greater than the individual parts that make it up, as the parts who make it up are what makes it great. All of this, of course, is in accordance with the perfect will of the Holy Spirit, as He empowers, if you remember last week, Energon. He energizes us. He empowers us as we're united. What's the driving thing that makes this possible? Love. And Paul starts to steer the ship that way, because... 1 Corinthians 13, we all know that's the love chapter, right? And so he's starting to steer the ship and prepare his his readers for this love. John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What's the unifying principle? Love. And this is love, 1 John 4, 10 through 11. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
And Paul's taking us down that path right now. He writes in, in verses 28 through 30, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Now, I've talked about the office of apostles and prophets before, so I don't want to go too much into that today. But notice that God appoints these, these offices, not men, not people. The appointments are God's to make. We cannot just give ourselves a title. A church cannot just give that title or an organization. It's God's to declare and make evident. And some of you are looking at me like, you hypocrite. The Assemblies of God made you a pastor. Well, actually, what the Assemblies of God did was recognize a calling God had put on my life, and they ordained me. They just wanted to be a part of the ministry God wanted to do. And that sounds really arrogant, but that's really the way the Assemblies would word that. They recognize the call. They recognize the gifts. They recognize what God has done. And so they, they ordain it, and they, they made me a minister. But that, that calling, without the, assembly, without the assemblies of God, still stands. Then what follows? Miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. We only see these things end once we reach eternity later in chapter 13. Nowhere does... Paul insinuate they're, in, they're a foundational thing like he does with the offices of prophets and apostles in Ephesians 2.20. So we know these gifts to our cessationist friends who, who don't believe the gifts are for today. We believe they do continue because Paul never puts a limit on that. In fact, later in chapter 14, he's going to say, don't, don't forsake speaking in tongues. Don't stop that. We also have Paul, he's adding to his list of gifts here, the, the gift of helps and administration. Now, I explained most of the gifts last week, so I'll do that here as well. Gifts would be similar to what he's referring to as uh, servanthood or possibly exhortation that we see in Romans 12, 7, and 8. And, of course, administration would likely be the gift of leadership, which we see also in Romans 12, 8. Paul begins to ask these rhetorical questions. Are all apostles? Well, no. Are all prophets? Nope. Are all teachers? No. Are all doing miracles? Are all practicing the gift of healing? Do all... Speak in tongues or interpret. No, no, we don't see that. Remember in verse 11, all these are empowered uh, by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The Holy Spirit gives these gifts to individuals according to his sovereign will, his sovereign plan. But the problem that was happening in the Corinthian church and happens in many churches today is that they would elevate a certain office or a certain gifting above the other. They would take the office of apostle above another person. Paul says, I do not like that. In fact, earlier in chapter 2, he writes, when I, I, when I came to you, brothers, did not, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, Paul is a vastly intelligent man. If you've studied the man at all, you know he's, he's a genius. He's a very brilliant person, but yet he does not want these people to see him as something like that. Someone who has the gift of prophecy. We might call them a prophet, but their job is not to be elevated above anyone else. Their position would be to keep the church on track, make, to keep them operating in accordance with God's Word. I had a professor once at Bible college. He said, very seriously, those of you who are going into ministry, beware any man or woman who calls himself a prophet. 
Most prophets, if we look in the Old Testament, and I believe we see it in Agabus in the, in the book of Acts, they do not want to be prophets. Nobody would want to be a prophet and give the news they had to give to people. Nobody wants to be an apostle and suffer like the one who sins the apostles did. In the same way, we should not be quick to use the gifts of the Spirit without knowing the responsibility that comes with them. That's what got the Corinthian church in trouble. We shouldn't give an utterance without weighing it or considering it or testing it. If they are given, the rest of us must test it with Scripture. We talked about this last week. We cannot just say, old Jim Bob, he's filled with the Holy Ghost, so we better listen. No, old Jim Bob don't get a pass. All right? None of us do. We must be discerning, but we, have to, we do it in love as the church grows in the Spirit, not stunted by selfishness or laziness. And I say selfishness on the person who would operate in a gift in a way to elevate themselves, or laziness on the part of those around him who will not hold his feet to the fire. Paul wraps it up in verse 31. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more, uh, show you a still more excellent way. Now this is vital. This is something I hope we all understand this morning. Many translations could do a slightly better job with this passage. There is something in the English language we call an understood you, right? If I go over to Wes and Patty are sitting up here, so I'm going to use them as an example. If I go over to their house and we're having dinner and I look right at Wes and I say, pass me the mashed potatoes, please. I didn't say, you pass me the mashed potatoes, but what's he likely going to do? Pass me the mashed potatoes, right? What happens in the English translation here is there is an understood you, but the translators don't bother to tell us this. It's actually in the Greek form of the word zolete, and which is often what gets translated, earnestly desire. What Paul is really saying is, but you earnestly desire. The ete at the bottom is the plural form of you. So when he's saying here is, but you earnestly desire. The root word, zelo, is where we get the English word zealous. But there's actually in the Greek, there's a negative connotation to this. In fact, it sometimes gets translated as jealousy or envy. In the King James, it's, it's actually translated a little better. It says covet. You covet these things. Now we read that and we pass it off. We brush it off and say, well, it was a good kind of covet. no. Not really. That's not what Paul's saying here. In fact, it's, if he meant it in a good way, it's contradictory to everything he's just said. Right? But you earn a, you're jealous for, you're, you're zealous for the higher gifts. Why would they be? Because they're wanting to elevate themselves. In fact, it would, it would better be translated, but you earnestly desire the higher gifts in a wrong way. That's the intent. That's what he's getting at here. But then he says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And what's the better way? To do it in love. Now, Paul is going to go on. They're focused on the external, and, but love is the internal key that unlocks the gifts for a better purpose. And Paul, like I say, he's going to go on. He's going to establish they should desire certain gifts. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14.1, he's going to say, pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. But what does he say first and foremost at its core? Pursue love. That's why he's going to wrap up chapter 14. He's going, to, he's going to say it like this. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. 
when they're done properly, or Paul says decently, which could also be translated becomingly, and in order, it's because they're being done in a way that is loving and respectful to one another and to God. To use the gifts from any other place in our spirits is not from the Holy Spirit. That's not how the church should operate. The church of God, if it is spirit-led, is a surrendered, suffering, soul-winning church. We must be in tune with the Holy Spirit if we are to make any kind of impact for God that we want to see. I want to rephrase that. I don't like the way that sounds. We must be in tune with the Holy Spirit if we want to make the impact He wants to see. A.W. Tozer once said that if a hundred pianos were tuned to one another, it would just be noise when they tried to play together. But if all of the pianos were tuned to the exact same tuning fork, they would all be in tune together. And so it is with the church. If we are in step with the Holy Spirit as individuals, we will be united. We are effective. We will be spirit-led. If we are surrendered to the Holy Spirit, we follow the Spirit's leading We follow the word he inspired. We are in step together. Amen? We see a great example of this in the church of Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 1.5, Paul writes them, he says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And within a few weeks of Paul coming to them, that church turned from their idols. You know, they were only about 50 miles from Mount Olympus where the Greek gods, the Greek pantheon was thought to live. And yet, Scripture tells us after three Sabbaths, they cast down all their idols and followed Christ. That's a surrendered church. Verse 6 in 1 Thessalonians 1. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They were a suffering church. We see it in Acts chapter 17. Paul goes on. uh, Paul goes in. I'm sorry. He goes in. He preaches for those three weeks. Him, Silas, and Timothy. And the crowd gets worked up, and they want to go, and they want to beat Paul, Silas, and Timothy to death. Instead, this is what happens, Acts 17, verse 5, but the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. Let me tell you something. If we are a spirit-filled, surrendered church, we will be a suffering church, but we will turn the world upside down. And we will face the suffering together. And if we're turning the world upside down, that means we're a soul-winning church. 1 Thessalonians 1.7 reads, You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living living and true God. They were an example of what a church should be. In the New Testament, there are few churches that I would say are better than the church at Thessalonica. Their example and the message they preached made them a soul-winning church. Isn't that the type of church we want to be? And this, 
that we must be a spirit surrendered first. Church. Operating in the gifts decently and in order and most of all in love. Because the spirit makes us operate in love. Love for Christ, love for each other. In love, the greatest gift, the gift that will not ever end. Paul made that very clear in 1 Corinthians 13.8. We will be united, drawing closer all the more to Christ, all the more together, operating in the Spirit-empowered gifts that he's blessed us with. I'm going to move to close in just a second. I want to challenge us. I'm very serious this morning. I want you to... Why don't you ask a hard question this morning, those of you who call the Faith Assembly your home. I want you to ask, are we a united church? Are we operating in the gifts as we ought to? Are we loving one another? Are we encouraging one another? Are we engaging with one another in love? If not, why not? What can we do, each of us as individuals, what can we do differently? What does the Holy Spirit prompt you to do differently? What giftings has he placed in your life and are you using them for building up the church and building up your brothers and sisters in Christ? Some of you say, well, I, I, <clears throat> I had that gifting years ago. Paul says, Romans eleven twenty nine, where the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. If you do not know your gifting, then I would challenge you today, spend some time in prayer. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you. You've never been baptized in the Holy Spirit with evidence of speaking in tongues and you'd like to receive that, we'd love to pray with you for that. This past six months, I'm going to share something with you. I've debated this all week. Since about October, I've been under very intense spiritual oppression. And those of you who come on we're coming on Thursday nights and Wednesday nights now. Prayer <clears throat> can attest to this. It's been a lot of up and down for me, and <clears throat> never saw that coming at the at the level that it's been. And I won't share too much, but on Monday I I went to write this sermon, and I sat in my office and I just stared at my computer screen for about ten or fifteen minutes, just blank. I came in here and I began to pray, and of course, I saw empty communion cups that I needed to clean up, and my wife came. Of course, she, lo- she has this perfect timing to interrupt me right in the most spiritual moment. No, I'm kidding. But I found myself just face first at the altar, just praying, God, I'm tired. Someone once said, the thing that will burn a pastor out faster than anything is not living up to expectations he set for himself that God never set. And I can tell you that's true. I was very burned out. And I just got on my face, and I'll give you this. This is the short version. Wow. And the Holy Spirit just began to remind me of my gifts and my calling. I'll tell you what. I, I hit right over here. I hit my face on the altar, broken, tired, beaten down, but when I stood up, I tell you, I got my second wind. And I just, I just felt so at peace. The Holy Spirit reminded me of who I am in Christ. And some of you, you're in that same place. And you're beat up. And you're tired. And you're broken. And the Holy Spirit's saying, remember your gifts. Remember who I called you to be. Remember who I made you to be. You're not washed up. You're not broke down. 
You are who I made you. Who are you in Christ? This morning, I would challenge you. There is something about getting alone with Christ. I was just talking with Dale yesterday about this. Some people think the reason people went up on mountaintops was because that was closer to God. No, the reason they got up on mountaintops, nobody else wanted to go up there with them. They got alone with God. Get alone with God today. If you've got to get out of your seat and come to the front and pray, fine, do that. We'll have somebody come pray with you. You don't want somebody to pray? Just say, leave me alone. Whoa, whoa, okay, we'll leave you alone. But you do not go through this life by yourself. We go through it together. That's the way God designed it. You do not carry that weight by yourself. You have a brother or a sister in Christ to come alongside you. And we might have physical ailments. We may have emotional, mental. It doesn't matter. You don't have to carry it by yourself. So I challenge you, get alone. But you are not alone. I'm going to close in prayer. Altars are open. Father God, this morning, speak to our hearts. Unify your church. Holy Spirit, have your way in this room this morning. I pray that no one leaves here today feeling beat up or broken down, but reminded of who they are in Christ. Lord, you don't make trash. You don't make junkers. You don't make jalopies. And may, we may feel like that. We may be broke down. We may be burned out. We may be tired. But Lord, you've called us to fight the good fight and to put our hands to the good work. So Lord, revive us today. Renew us today, I pray. Father, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.